This is the Hidden Roles Podcast. By Dungeon Masters for Dungeon Masters. We are going to give you a peek on our side of the table so you can see inside our notebooks and what we've been doing on our side of the screen. Now, let me roll my 20. Okay, check my table. And my guest this week is... My name is Daisy Darling, and I am the DM for a untitled 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons campaign for a group of rowdy professional wrestlers. Now, fair warning. If you are a player in any of my games, or in Daisy Darling's games, and you listen to this... Nice characters you've got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to them. Daisy, thank you very, very much for being on my podcast. Well, thank you, Brian, so much for having me on uh, the uh, podcast, Hidden Roles. And uh, I'm excited to share thoughts, insights, laughs, and have a good time. I am too, and you shared a little something right before we started, and I can't wait for us to get to that stuff. But let us start with this. What is the first TTRPG that you played? The first TTRPG that I ever played was a Western game, Star Wars, the role-playing game. And I believe I played it in, I'll age myself here, 1991. Okay. So what was that rule set like? I'm familiar with the newer one, with uh, Edge of the Empire. Um, but I'm not familiar mm-hmm. with that one. So the original Star Wars The Role-Playing Game was a D6-based game with a wild die mechanic. So you would roll a number of dice equal to your uh, skill or attribute. And... Uh, there's a wild die to where if it rolls a six on the die, you keep rolling it. If you roll a one, you take away that one in the highest or introduce a complication. And the core mechanic is very simple, where essentially you are uh, trying to roll higher than a difficulty number. So arbitra- not arbitrarily, but uh, there's a simple guideline, say uh, 20. 20 is something that's very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are going to try to shoot a bullseye at the end of the corridor and open the blast doors so your friends can escape the difficulty is 20 and your skill is five dice so you would roll five dice and then see if you rolled higher than a 20 um and then adding some randomness to that there's the wild die which can either help or hinder you Mm -hmm. okay i like that um what is your favorite ttrpg system my favorite TTRPG system is Invisible Sun by Monty Cook Games. And tell me about that. I am not familiar with that. Tell me about that. Invisible, Invisible Sun is a surreal fantasy game where a lot of narrative control is given to the player characters. It takes place in a fantastical realm known as the actuality. And the conceit of the game is essentially, um, what if our dreams were reality? And reality mm. was our dreams. So uh, everything is extremely magical. Um, the rule books itself uh, have many puzzles, codes, hidden messages uh, throughout them. Um, the game comes with this 
six-fingered hand statue. You solve enough puzzles, you learn that there's additional puzzles hidden inside the hand statue. You crack open the bottom and pull out sheets of paper. So it's really a masterful work by Monty Cook. Oh, that, that is really... so cool. Yes, and every player, uh, the way they advance is you select a character arc and you advance down your character arc in order to uh, obtain experience. Um, in their arcs, the, the arc might be something like fall in love or defeat a great enemy or uh, create a masterful work. And so you and the game master will work through it. Um, it's not a prepless game in the sense that the game master, uh, they prep it in a very non-traditional way. Essentially, players show up and say, this is what I want to do to achieve my arc. Mm -hmm. But they don't understand all the secrets of the setting and the game master. Their number one job is to read the setting books and kind of go with the flow and mm -hmm. um it has a tarot-like deck that causes very interesting occurrences to have throughout so invisible suns probably my favorite game system it is uh a colossal work by monty cook games uh that is just beautiful to look at and it's uh empowering to play i i can understand why that is wow that's hitting a lot of levers that are very very interesting Oh, that is very cool. I'm going to need to check that out. Wow. Okay. Um, so how did you make the transition, or did you start, when you started playing Star Wars, the, uh, the role-playing game, did you start behind the screen, or did you make that transition? And, and when you made that transition, how did you do that? How did you go from being a player to being the herder of cats? So for my 11th birthday, my older brother Sam who's about six years older than me, bought me a couple of adventures and one of the galaxy guides. And for his birthday, he got uh, the rule books. And he was 17 years old. He was a senior in high school. And him and all of his friends said, you're going to run for us. Um, <laughs> so I was only 11. So at age 11, I had to run for a group of surly Gen X high schoolers. Um, and um, we did pretty good until we ran into the first mechanic. And uh, they scolded me. I ran home crying. I cracked open. The, I had to reread uh, a section of the rule book five times before I was allowed to come back and run, which seems uh, draconian, and it was. Uh, but <laughs> I, I went back and I, I wiped all, uh, away the tears, and then I kept running the session. And at the end of the first episode, it's a game that's episodic in nature. Mm -hmm. Everyone said that was really fun. Can we play again? I said, sure. And so I started improvising the rest of the adventure uh, for the group. And it was just, uh, I was hooked after the first session. Wow. Um, so they threw you in the deep end right away. Right away, right away. And um, I don't think I would have survived uh, the experience, except um, one of my older brother's friends who wasn't part of that group was a very, very experienced game master mm -hmm. and loaned me the game master handbook, mm. um, which had an enormous amount of advice and um, just, it, it gave me all sorts of skills, tools, inspiration. Um, I also got a chance to play under him and see how someone else did it. But um, I think I ran that game every week for a group of players for, for maybe 20 years. Wow. So you did you so did you play at all prior to that or is it you did that and then you you ran your first game and then you had the opportunity to play under this other person or 
I had run about six sessions. And then you had a chance to actually be a player. Yes. Wow, that is a... Wow, I mean, it's... That's... that. I. I... Wow, I mean... <laughs> It's it's such a it's such a novel way to have someone be introduced into TTRPG. It's usually you know the stand the standard route is you start playing and then one day well hey I think I might want to do this and so oh man how do you think that that has influenced your approach to running games having started in the GM, DM, chair, whatever you want to call it, starting on that side of the screen. How, how do you think that might have influenced you in how you run games? I think um, in a, as a gamer as a whole, whether I'm running or playing, it mm-hmm. gives me a deep appreciation for um, the individual that might be selected as a facilitator of the game. Mm-hmm. So... For me, I, I just have a deep appreciation. So if someone else is running the game, uh, I learned how to be respectful and supportive and uh, uh, model the kind of uh, play behavior that I would expect out of the other folks who are playing at the table. Mm-hmm. And likewise, uh, where it influenced my play is it influ- um, or, or the the way I run games is it influenced me to essentially be fearless and durable and uh, assertive. Mm -hmm. Because when you're 11 years old and you're Mm -hmm. running for people who are just about to enter adulthood, uh, it's very easy for them to take advantage and, you know, the game can get away from you and, you know, um, you're much smaller than them and you don't have as much life experience. And Mm -hmm. uh, even just your reading level is much lower than theirs. And, Mm -hmm. uh, However, you you learn to uh, control and run the table and also understand that um, if everyone's there is there in good faith and they're all trying to have fun and the way they get fun is by playing and engaging with the game itself, mm-hmm. then it doesn't really matter how old or experienced you are. And I try to take this. Um, uh, we had a spreadsheet somewhere, but I've facilitated games for over 2000 people. Um, you know, I've been featured on, you know, over 50 Twitch channels. I've, uh, you know, been published by, you know, uh, all my heroes of, of publishers. I don't say that as a brag. Yeah. But I got there. It all started with um, being a kid at age 11 and sitting at a table and running an RPG for a group of surly high schoolers. <laughs> and it sounds like the group you were running did have that approach of wanting to be they wanted to be there they wanted to play and while they made you read that section five times over before you were allowed to come back it does sound like they did not take advantage of the fact that they had a younger person at the table running the game it sounded like they were that you had a it, am i am i picking up on that that was a pretty supportive a nice group to have i mean if you ran the game for them for 20 years i'm I ran uh, the game system for 20 years. Oh, the system. I, I apologize. I'm under some... Oh, and I'll say it was great, too, because uh, they didn't take advantage of me because uh, once the role-playing game became the hip thing to do, if you started taking advantage or you started being mean, uh, you're not playing well with others and you won't get invited back. Mm. So that's that's something... Um, it's it's both uh, an improv skill and uh, a sportsmanship skill mm-hmm. it, where if you don't learn how to play well with others then eventually you will be burned out of the group or you know the group will self-select and curate 
and invite people who can persist in the game. Yeah. By that, the concept of persistence, that means we want to keep playing again and again and again as many times as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're a bully, uh, no one's going to put up with you. Likewise, if you bully the game master, uh, the game master is not going to agree to one run anymore. And then someone yeah. else is going to have to learn all the rules. This is true. And it amazes me. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. How many toxic players? You know, you always hear the horror stories, and I, I maintain that they're still the minority. It's not the 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 majority of people who play these games are not bad people. There's a there are a few bad seeds, um, but it's I do find it amazing that those people can have as many years as they have playing these games. But you hear also, or maybe even see or witness how they've approached the game itself and the people around them. It's like why and how you know it's mm -hmm. i don't get it <laughs> no and it's um there's ways to manage and create toxicity and i used to be a contract game master that would get hired by parents to run rpgs for children that needed to be socialized they're having trouble mm. with their friend groups they're having trouble with sports they're having trouble at school uh they were uh not very respectful and as a, a bit of a mary poppins that would be brought in to straighten out the children <laughs> uh, except i do that by teaching them how to play well uh there's some wonderful wonderful um individuals in the community like adam sparks and uh, dr b with uh, games to grow and similar organizations where they use rpgs as a sort of behavioral therapy activity and so there are toxic players um, yeah. but it's interesting that you can rehabilitate people's play styles um using uh, basic techniques such as sentence framing and uh, uh just sort of the positioning at the table and you can actually mm -hmm. use it to help people acclimate to being in that environment. And uh, there's definitely some situations where people uh, do awful things at the table. And uh, we have enough evidence that we know that uh, it's occurrence, it's not necessarily a rare occurrence, but um, it is the minority, I believe, because otherwise I don't think uh, the game itself would be able to thrive. Exactly. Um, it's similar with uh, online games. You. Mm -hmm run into a, a griefer or a bad player or someone who's ill-mannered um, with a certain amount of frequency. Fortunately, mm -hmm. with tabletop RPGs, you can curate the group. Uh, it's a little bit, bit easier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I see now I want the series that is uh, where the log line is. It's Mary Poppins, but it's the Mary Poppins of RPGs. I want I want to see that now on Netflix or whatever. It Table Impossible. It Running this oh. table is impossible. Oh my god, that would be an amazing show. <laughs> oh, I'd love to do it. Um, you know, I cut like, my you have like the DM team. boot camp. It's like it's like uh, what was that? Uh, Super nanny, but like for the DMs. Mm -hmm. and... <laughs> Absolutely, and I think it's very useful. And I think a good environment uh, for anyone listening to this is cut your teeth as being a convention game master where oh. you go to game conventions and you learn to run for random individuals that have signed up. They oftentimes they paid money to play in the event. Mm -hmm. um, but you're just going to have to manage all kinds of tables and uh, develop skills to manage and facilitate those tables. I will say I am not brave enough to try that. I, that is something I would be terrified of that I, not necessarily because of the people at the table i i'm not like oh i'm gonna have all the bad no i would just be like man am i gonna be able i i would be nervous about running a game for strangers and not having that 
um, that margin of error I have with my friends that if I'm a little off my game or if I make a mistake, not to say that, you know, you have to be perfect, but you know, you don't have that with strangers, at least in my head, you don't have it with strangers. And, oh, that's, that's a brave thing. Yeah. It, it takes, um, and when, you know, just a little peek behind the curtain in those situations, I usually begin with trust building at the table. Um, um, then I go through a period that I call the investment and immersion where I get everyone, uh, in cinema, and you know I'm a filmmaker by trade. Mm-hmm. I get everyone to uh, I create lean forward moments where everyone just leans in a little bit, and they're like, "Okay, I think, you know, I'm at a convention. This is a game of strangers, but it's real now. You know, and they're just <laughs> like they're like they're part of the game, and then they all invest, and they realize they're like, we've had a table of people that have never played together before that just shared this powerful bonding experience in a public place, um, and it can be quite good. But you're right, it can be terrifying and um when i started doing it at the start of fifth edition dungeons and dragons i was mm-hmm. watching uh, a lot of tables struggle in the convention space um and in games like pathfinder etc where um it, it was just it was a time in the zeitgeist where it felt like convention game masters were struggling mm-hmm. and um now um uh i would say less so but that also might be my own bias because i've been doing it so long yeah <laughs> Oh man, that is that takes a lot of bravery to do that. That is so good on you. That takes that takes I think the word I'm looking for is moxie. I think <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> um kind of a random question but in our rapid fire rapid fire ish section of the podcast, what is your favorite monster? Mind flayers. Mind flayers. Why are mind flayers? And I I'm not surprised. Um, but why are mind flayers why I'm telling it again. Why are mind flayers your favorite monster? They are um proprietary. They are meaning, you know, they're they're bespoke mm-hmm. to Dungeons and Dragons. Uh they are alien. Mm-hmm. They are um psionic, which is a controversial rule set and system that mm-hmm. has existed since Eldritch Wizardry. You know, Gary Gygax was like, you know, I need to make some mechanics that will just nothing that the players have ever seen and and so you have these these creatures um from another plane that infest the underdark that are are prevalent in you know legendary box sets like night below Mm -hmm. um or uh my friend bruce cordell wrote uh the elithiad which is like the original uh, guide to mind flayers and they're just they're kind of a creepy cool Mm -hmm. you know and they're villainous. They're brain eaters. They're they're awful. <laughs> yes, there's that too. Yes, they drill a hole in your head with their tongue. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they they're uh, I think it was was it Volo's Guide to Monsters or it was one of the source books and they really got a little bit deeper in, in fifth edition on the on the mind flayers and it was like oh mm-hmm. oh just a whole this is all icky all of it <laughs> none of it's good disgusting yeah. Um, now before we get a little bit deeper into some of the other questions I have I need to ask. So you said you run games for professional wrestlers, and I need to know more. There's just so much there. I do. I'm not going to name drop. No, it's but, okay. Um, That's fine. That's fine. I had been uh, producing a show on Twitch um, for a well-known, highly regarded channel, mm-hmm. and there was a, a professional wrestler on that stream. Mm-hmm. Um, one day, a cast member couldn't show up, and they asked me if I would fill in, and... Um, 
I just crack them all up so bad with uh, <laughs> my shenanigans. And then uh, at the end of that, I, I, I gave everyone my cell phone number and let them know if they ever needed to get a hold of me for any reason. And a professional wrestler was like, hey, um, I need a Twitch producer, short notice for a stream. Can you do something? And I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a month or two later was, hey, can you start running my home game? Here's who's in it. And I said, okay, right. I, I can do this. I'm, I'm fans of everyone. And um, we've been playing every week for about 10 months now. And it is just a blast. It is. Uh, I can just, oh, only imagine. Over the, over the top. And they rib each other. They yeah. pick on each other. They they are goofy. They all have very different personality types. But they all show up every week. And uh, they just love the magic of play. And they love having a weekly game. And I think it was the last session that one of them said, I've never played a character this high level before. And oh, cool. I mentioned earlier about when you play well with the when you play well with others, the campaign persists. Yeah. And so they've been able to play every week and they're like, I've never been this high level before. And it's very exciting for them. I have to imagine. Now I've seen, I saw, uh, I saw a big show when he was on with Jocks Machina mm-hmm. when they did the D and D event and, uh, Xavier Woods, um, who joined the acquisitions incorporated game and was, and they were both fantastic. And I think because there's so much of that improv muscle that they have to exercise while performing their craft that that probably and they're used to playing an over-the-top character that you know probably translates well but i have to imagine there's got to be a little bit of a catharsis there too that they have this touch point every week when they've got a life that you know you hear all of the struggles they have with just being on the road constantly that this has got to be like a a catharsis or at least a little like a a touch point for them to be like all right i'm going to ground myself and i'm just going to be this other thing and just have fun and Absolutely. A good mental health thing for them. It is. It's a comfort. It's an escape. Um, When you think about it, it's very, very, very difficult, particularly in um, the time of a global pandemic. Um, Your job's not necessarily secure as a pro wrestler. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's lots of releases that happens. And each month when they release talent, you know, you go through such great stress. Uh, But to have the comfort of a game where you can escape for a few hours in uh, play a fantastical character. And I, I think uh, one of the reasons you see uh, such powerful impor- uh, performances is um, pro wrestlers develop a skill called getting over. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get over with each other and they get over with audiences and they get over with crowds. Um, they understand how to connect with an individual and take control of the moment and create moments as well as create space for others. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if one pro wrestler dominates too much time, then the audience becomes bored with them mm-hmm. um, to the point where they start gaining heat and they start getting booed. So that's something I've noticed when I've played with the wrestlers is they're very good at creating space for other people, mm-hmm. as well as when it's their turn to have the space, they know how to create powerful, impactful moments, um, as well as uh, get over. And uh, as well as they, they sort of develop a, the fact that their schedules are so rigorous, mm-hmm. um, they're constantly in practice of... Uh, doing it mm-hmm. as well as they, they all like to have a good time and they're competitive yeah. too. Like they, they want to do well in the game itself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, you just hit like on a whole bunch of stuff there that is like, it's like a di- very direct translation to like how, like be, so yeah, being a good, being, being at the top of your game at whatever level you're at, being at the top of your game as a pro wrestler, you would 
have a set of skills that are very, very similar that would make you at least, I don't want to say be a good game player because I don't, I don't think, you know, I don't want to use that term good, but one who's going to have a lot of fun with it and the people at the table will have a lot of fun. So maybe in that sense, you know, being good in that you're, you're bringing a lot of joy to the people around yes. you. Man. Here's, 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 here's a really good correlation. I think the number one skill that, that you need to develop as both a pro wrestler and as a facilitator of games or a player in tabletop is uh, you need to develop trust and trust is built upon psychological safety. If I explain to people, uh, you can have a pro wrestler from Mexico and Japan that don't speak the same language that can work an incredible match mm-hmm. because they trust each other and they know how to be safe. Mm-hmm. And so with pro wrestlers, uh, they learn how to, uh, I think it was uh, Stephen Regal who had a phrase. He goes, you learn how to hit really hard in safe places. I hit very so, hard in very safe places. Yeah, I remember that yes. quote exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly. So that's that's <laughs> something you learn how to do as a role player as well. And a skill you can get from professional wrestling um, where you learn how to hit very hard in very safe places. Mm-hmm. So uh, you have what looks like a very, very, very uh, impactful, maybe emotional blow. Mm-hmm. Um but it's safe and you're not going to break the individual right. and it can be kept in sort of this kayfabe uh, pyramid of trust system. And those are skills that you can apply in professional environments at the game table, whether pro yeah. wrestling or not. Well, you think about it. No one, you're not going to randomly do a ladder spot with someone in the ring without having discussed it with it with them, with them, with them, that with them first. So it's sort of the same thing with D and D or any, I say D and D, but any RPG you, don't want to do a high spot with them if you haven't talked if they weren't prepared to do that that could be damaging to the player absolutely wow this is nuts that there's i never i mean i i I mean i i mean i grew up when i was a kid i think you and i are about the same age so grew up with the whole you know rock and wrestling you know hulkamania Mm -hmm. stuff and then there was the Attitude Era, which was, and I was in college for that. It was a very, very cool time. And then, you know, as I got older, I got out of it. And I follow it very uh, tangentially now. But I love listening to all the interviews with these guys like, from, like, Absolutely. getting behind the scenes. But, man, I never even thought about how much this parallels. That is so cool. Yeah, <laughs> the, the two, the two um, what I'll call domains that have been most inspirational to mm-hmm. me in tabletop are professional wrestling and stand-up comedy yeah those are the two things it, more so than my filmmaking and i've been shortlisted for an oscar mm-hmm. and i was nominated for best feature at south by southwest stand-up comedy and uh professional wrestling are the two things that i pull from the most uh whether i'm on stream or off mm-hmm. um it's just uh the skill sets i've developed from those two uh domains well, I, this is not RPG related at all, but I figure just because we're on the uh, favorite heel, favorite face, and if you have a favorite overall, it doesn't matter whether it's heel or face. I know that's tough, but okay. I just want to throw that out there because I just got. I'm just curious. All right. Um, <laughs> All time favorite heel is Ric Flair working heel. Okay. Um, and my favorite face of all time would be the Icon Sting. Okay. Um, I. Close behind Ric Flair would be. Uh, I, I'd probably say my favorite of all time is Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah, yeah, Rowdy was something else, man. Yeah, and there's just it's so hard to pick favorites. Like, yeah, I really like Randy Savage. I really oh. like. Yeah. Just 
I like all of them. <laughs> Ricky Steamboat. Ricky, I I think because just because when I came up with it, I always loved Triple H as a as a heel. He's so good. Yeah, he, yeah. He's someone. Yeah. Um, I think when I was in high school, he was probably my favorite. Yeah. As a heel. And I think a mile time. I think, man, I think I gotta go Jake the Snake. Cause that dude has chops when it come when he gets on the mic. Mm-hmm. I saw a clip from him. I think it was with AEW, and it was just like he was like, "And never turn your back on someone you respect." And he just turns. It's like, man, man. Anyway, I'm <laughs> oh, totally good. We're allowed to mark out on this podcast. Ah, uh, yes, absolutely, man. Ah, okay. Anyway, so getting more into the TTRPG side, and if we want to keep on with the with the with the wrestling metaphors and analogies, we can. But um, we actually this ties in. We had talked about you know uh, the, the the hitting very hard in very safe places, basically the safety of your players. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition to that, also being able to build something of an interesting campaign story, whatever, depending on the game that you're running. So session zero is always very very important. What are the questions that you ask, or what is the information that you need when you're conducting session zero for a brand new campaign? Okay. Um, and the way I'm going to answer this question is uh, I'm going to reference a game that's been around almost as long as Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a German game called uh, Dashfort's Alga, which is the Dark Eye. Mm-hmm. Um, it is uh, published by Ulysses Spiele, and they have a guide in their um, appendix called uh, a guide to a great session and they have a section for players and they have a section for game masters and then they have a section for everyone together and it asks about 58 procedural questions and they explain that you we call it a session zero but this is uh, longer than in North America they learn that you should have a session where players and game masters and facilitators and everyone that's going to be in the room get mm-hmm. together and talk about uh, what should occur. And I'll give you an example of a question they might ask. They say, how do we feel about um, die rolls where it completely spoils the narrative? Do we want to agree as a table that maybe we can hand wave these? Um, are there rules in the rule book that we don't want to include? They actually have a checklist. It's very German in design. Of, <laughs> you know, the Dark Eye is almost a meme because it has over a thousand rules. Interesting to note that you can fit the essential rules on just four pages. The rules, the explanation of all of them. But they actually have three degrees and over a thousand rules if you want to incorporate uh, granular detail. Which is interesting mm. because anytime any situation comes up, they have a rule for it, uh, but then they also have a general guideline that could just get you through it if you didn't want to dig in deeper. Mm. Um, but they they guide you through this. They go, well, how do we feel about introducing new players to the group? Not everyone thinks about that. They say, we have a group. They say, but have you considered, what's your procedure for introducing? Can anyone just bring anyone they want? Should you talk about it as a group? Is it the game master who introduces it? So some of, the, some of these questions, uh, now, that's a very in-depth guide, and I actually think it's one of the best ones out there especially if you're running a long, persistent campaign. Some of the things, questions I would ask, though, mm-hmm. is I'd be like, what are some things that um, uh, what are some things that we want to have out of bounds? These are 
subject matter, issues, uh, turns of phrase, content that are out of bounds. Mm -hmm. Same as if we were drawing a basketball court. It's out of bounds. That doesn't Mm -hmm. count. It's out of play. What are some things that we feel need to occur off camera? Are there situations or fictional events in the game that should occur off camera? Um, We fade to black on these. Mm -hmm. Um, In some parlance, we refer to both of these things as lines and veils, which comes Mm -hmm. from a 2002 essay by Ron Edwards. Uh, Hi, Ron, if you hear this. Um, And then, uh, then I ask people, what are your content wishes and promises that you want? We talked about what we don't want in the game. What are some things you absolutely want to be included in this game? And then we can talk about whether it's even within the context of the game to include those things or how we might modify uh, our play space to include them. Um, Something else that I've recently introduced, I play a lot of romantic RPGs. Mm -hmm. And so we, um, we include a matrix of this is how I feel in regards towards romance to NPCs. Mm-hmm. Here's how I feel in regards to romance with other players. Here's some additional guidelines. Like I might tell everyone it's like flirting's a free action, but always ask before you touch. <laughs> so yeah. if we're in the game, don't smooch me. Good, good um, rule for life too. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> but these are some things that I put in a session zero. Uh, some other things we go over is I have a, uh, some common assumptions about the game not necessarily questions but uh in order for people to buy in like if i'm running knights black agents which is a gumshoe game by ken height i say the assumption is you are you all trust each other you're super spies and you all trust each other this scenario only works if your characters trust each other um vagabonds of deferred which is a uh osr pbta game designed to just pick up old D modules and run them they, mm-hmm. they explain the players are uh, everyone works together mm-hmm. everyone works together um quest rpg explains you know that if there's pvp the players determine the outcome there's no rules they, they'll just determine if they can't come to uh, a consensus then it doesn't happen mm-hmm. and so there's all sorts of different ways to play it and adjust it based on the rule set that we're playing um but i like to introduce some assumptions and then talk about what's included you know i had a player recently that said they don't want spiders in the game so there's no there was no spiders mm-hmm. um it, there was another one where uh, someone said um it's very important to them that um we're playing good society which is the jane austen rpg and they said we we must make sure that um there's just a big dramatic kerfuffle at a dance party a ballroom scene. <laughs> because what why else are we playing the game fair <laughs> um so once you've gotten th- i'm saying getting through it's not like always oh, slog through but once once you've gotten through all of that and you're getting into the campaign what is your approach to planning a session um i've spoken with people <clears throat> who are almost entirely fly by the seat of their pants with only only the barest of notes to get through and then i've got the other side of people who are meticulous note takers and while they're not necessarily trying to micromanage every possible outcome they have they're trying to do a lot more planning a lot more heavy lifting uh what does your planning look like what what are your tactics for getting ready for a session okay um it's typically determined by 
game and group. And so what I'm going to do is describe how I prep for the professional wrestlers, mm -hmm. which is very much in alignment with um, the way I prep a game like Dungeons and Dragons in general. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I do is I write down the name of the players, who is sitting at the table, um, and I write down the names of their characters, race, class, and level. And I just write that down because each player might have individual needs or wants or desires or a play style and just writing down their names will bring that back to my memory mm -hmm. who's sitting at this table um and for context for the listeners i used to run 15 games a week which is a lot oh. so it's very important for me to figure out who is sitting at the table yeah um then the next thing i do is i write down a strong start this is how this week's session is going to start and we're going to start strong I want to be able to get it into action quickly. Um, and I typically need to have a strong start uh, to make sure I get everyone's energy up to carry us through the session. I run for this group at the tail end of the day. Um, some of the players have probably already started drinking. And so <laughs> I want to make sure that um, I, I can get them into the game and invested. So I write down a strong start. Could be a combat could be uh something unexpected like they meet uh, last session they met the princess of the apocalypse and she appeared and she announced that a comet was going to smash into the planet and they're just like what <laughs> um but that's how i started them it's just like doomsday scenario clock's ticking how are you going to handle this mm -hmm. um then the next thing i do is i write down 10 secrets or clues these are interesting things about the game world and the environment that they will be uh gaming through that i can introduce as sort of a uh, this comes from will Wright, the game designer he designed sim city and he designed spore mm -hmm. um he says one way you can keep people playing is by giving the uh, revealing to them secrets about the world and so it might be uh a blind beholder aimlessly wanders the underdark mm. and he is a creature of sadness so it's a beholder who, you know, they typically have a bunch of eye stalks and an eye. But what if that poor creature was blind mm. and it's aimlessly wandering? When my players find that, they're, they're going to ask questions about it and they're going to want to engage it. And um, they might actually, like, as I described, you know, the sad bruises and lacerations on this creature because he's blind, wandering through a cold place with sharp rocks. They might have sympathy and they might have pity for this creature mm -hmm. and it might cause them to invest. Or they might get into a fight against the blind beholder. Who knows? Mm -hmm. um, but it's one of those things, but I just write something down in a evocative phrase that will reveal a secret about the world or a clue to advance uh, whatever arc they are pursuing. Mm -hmm. And I write down at least 10 of those. That way I have ammunition, regardless of what's going on during the session, there's something I can introduce. Uh, the next thing I write down is planned combat encounters that might occur during uh, the session mm -hmm. and um if it's a creature i'm unfamiliar with i typically reference uh first the stat block then i read the lore and then i see if uh, someone like keith ammon who wrote uh, the monsters know what they're doing are there any tactics that i should be aware of if there's you know a massive spell block or um i ran an alhoon recently which is an undead beholder or not beholder illithid mm -hmm. just below lichdom and you know, 
they have a finite amount of spell slots, and tactically you can decide how to use their wall of force or their disintegrate spell, or if they're going to cast something, uh, when will they use their mind blast, etc. Um, someone's going to correct me in the comments where they go, oh, they don't have a mind blast, that's regular illithids. I get it, I remembered, so I added other <laughs> illithids to the encounter. Um, yes, and then I'm able to balance the encounter, and, and some of them I have as more like confidence building exercises, where it's mm -hmm. like, they're pro wrestlers i want them to squash some things i want them to you know come out there and uh just i might not even be tracking hit points i just want to see what actions i i want to see their psychology how would they approach mm -hmm. just you know, there's a group of bandits on the road they're leaving town and they see the bandits and they're in their airship how do they handle the bandits it gives them a chance to explore their abilities uh but also i definitely I always plan at least two deadly encounters mm -hmm. and the two deadly encounters are because I want to keep them awake and I want to challenge them. Um, I probably average in an actual combat 1.5 players get knocked unconscious. Um, mm -hmm. My players are currently ninth level. Um, they have tools to prevent death. Um, and, uh, but I like running challenging combats. Um, just slightly beyond probably what i'd refer to as the group experience and skill cap and the fact that it's just slightly beyond it's like when you're a parent teaching a child to speak you always speak to a child just beyond their vocabulary so they start to develop new vocabulary mm -hmm. so my players are starting to devise tactics and strategies to defeat uh creatures that are maybe just a little beyond what they're used to mm -hmm. um, and it lets them stretch and explore their abilities and become more proficient at solving uh, combat encounters. Uh, then the next thing I do is I write uh, five fantastic locations and evocative descriptions for them. These are backdrops. These are set pieces. These are uh, the things they're going to see in the game. Um, then lastly, um, I write down loot that they could potentially get. Uh, what tables I'll roll on. Um, and I can prep a uh, a three to four hour session in about a half hour. Mm -hmm. um, if I need to draw upon maps or other encounters for inspirations, I have a vast library of nearly 50 years of role-playing material from a variety of systems. And I'd say through that campaign, I've probably pulled from five different rule sets, 12 different publishers, um, we've gone all over um and it's been good and we've been playing about every week um and it's it's uh everyone seems to be appreciative so a lot of that advice comes from a book that i was thanked on in special thanks and collaborated on uh sly flourishes return of the lazy dungeon master mm -hmm. um that's sort of the lazy gm prep where there's some nuance and there's some variety is i probably put more emphasis on uh combat tactics and fantastic locations because i want these players to see things and experience things that they never have before so i think more with more intention on uh the evocative set pieces and uh the challenging combats okay so when it comes to combat are you more theater of the mind or are you closer to the, uh, like, how, how tactical with, like, minis, maps, and whatnot do you like to get versus how much uh, pure theater of the mind? Uh, where on that scale do you think you fall? Or do you enjoy this. the most? 
I would say, um, and not to avoid answering the question, but I'm rather agnostic. What mm -hmm. I like to do is I like to um, examine the source material and uh, have tools to provide for the needs of the players. Mm -hmm. So some players might need some level of abstract positioning. Mm -hmm. um, so we might drop some minis on a very crude map just so they can get an idea of proportion of monster scale, the number of opponents, uh, and some abstract ranges. Uh, a good example is a system like 13th Age. I'm engaged, I'm near, I'm far. Uh, it's long range, I can't see it or target it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm running a, a, a module like Kobold Presses to Wake War, well, that has combat encounters with hundreds and hundreds of creatures. There would be absolutely no way we could represent that and run it uh, with any efficiency if we use minis for every creature on that mm -hmm. combat field. So, um, However, um, I'm a big fan of tactical combat, and I think so much of Dungeons & Dragons uh, mechanically is dependent upon a grid. Um, that I, I like to create set piece pitched battles mm -hmm. boss fights legendary encounters mm -hmm. where we introduce these components mm -hmm. um, so here's what I'd say percentage wise probably once every three sessions mm -hmm. I'm going to have an extremely evocative detailed tactical map uh, possibly commissioned or built and uh, positioning is going to be part of the flow of combat the players are going to have to think about how to control range and where they end up on the field of play mm -hmm. um, however in the interest of time and effort um, I'm probably going to use uh, two to one abstract positioning where I just have some abstract markers and some sample ranges um, just as a graphical representation mm -hmm. during combat. And then in the last place, we'll probably run pure theater of the mind, um, which I think is a really good and efficient way to run combat. But again, it comes down to the needs of the players and the needs of the group. Um, when I was running on the games tavern channel, uh, I had a player explain to me uh, that one, he was a nurse uh, two, it's the time of COVID. Three, he's probably worked 13 hours before he's come to game. Mm -hmm. Four, he's trying really hard. Five, he needs to be able to see where things are. Because mm -hmm. he's playing a wizard. He has a whole heck of a lot of spells. He's not too sure exactly how to do it. So, um, in order to uh, play the game and get the most enjoyment out of it, I committed to preparing a map and minis for every combat encounter for that mm. particular player. Um which isn't too hard. Um, it I I was running a published module, and so I had access to maps as well as uh, I was a patron to a number of Patreons, map maker Patreons, where mm -hmm. you have access to thousands and thousands of battle maps. So it's very easy to find something to suit an adventure. Uh, grab some uh, artwork from D and D Beyond, and this was played online and virtually, and just scale the images and place mm -hmm. them on the field. Um, with that said, in my weekly game with the pro wrestlers. Um, it's probably four times we've run Theater of the Mine, eight times we've run with abstract positioning and some graphical representations, and then twice we've run a very evocative, detailed hmm. tactical map on the grid. So uh, this is maybe you have a solution to this, because this is a challenge that I've run into. Whenever I've wanted to use maps uh, from 
the different modules. Uh, for example, um, uh, Princes of the Apocalypse. I have that module. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it has some really fun maps in there. But the challenge that I've always had is that that's the section of the book that really only the DM is supposed to be looking at. And the maps typically, these gorgeous maps, typically only have or have all of the DM notes on there. Like little, like either things are numbered or there's like little mm-hmm. clues and hints that you might not want, you might not want your players to be seeing uh, so as to not spoil anything or give away or eat, lead them. You mm-hmm. want them to kind of explore and discover the space on their own. How do you deal with that? Are you, because I found myself recreating the maps and it obviously never looks as good as it does in the book. How have you gone about dealing with that, uh, dealing with that, okay. that issue? Historically, what I would do is I would draw them on a tactical grid, mm-hmm. um, just using a simple, uh, like Chessex map, and I would mm-hmm. draw with a draw uh, dry erase marker. Uh, if you'd use a um, a permanent marker, this is the pro tip for everyone: you can draw over a permanent marker with a dry erase marker, and it, you can then erase permanent marker. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the pro tip for those of you that accidentally mark up your Chessex map. Mm-hmm. Um, the second tactic I would use is I would look on the cartographer's website and see if they are selling uh, high quality versions of their maps and oftentimes they have both a player facing and dungeon master facing version. Uh, Princes of the Apocalypse is a good example. I believe the maps were uh, a lot of them were drawn by uh, Michael Schley who, uh, you know, Mike Schley uh, S-C-H-L-E-Y and Mike sells uh uh, maps, you know, for like $2, you can get a very high quality uh, copy of the map that is player facing. Um, if you have access to a resource such as, uh, you know, if the maps were done by Lee Moyer, Lee Moyer has a site as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, look on the cartographer sites to see if they are selling uh, player friendly and player facing versions of the maps. Uh, likewise, if you're using a third party tool like D&D Beyond, uh, D&D Beyond will allow you to access both player and dungeon master versions of the map mm. uh, in a method that is su- uh, superior to the book. Uh, a good example, you know, yeah, I found them on, you know, Mike's uh, site. Like, I'll give you an example of uh, Princes of the Apocalypse. But um, you can uh, typically on a uh, on Mike's site, I'm just going to link in the chat, uh, he will have and include in his pack player and dungeon master versions. Mm-hmm. Um and um, again, if you uh, do purchase one of these maps, I recommend using the architecture printer at Staples, where you can do a large poster size print for like $2 instead of $30. Uh, so about $4, you can get someone to do all the work for you. And it is an added cost, um, but you're also avoiding revealing secrets within the book or uh, being forced to draw and do everything yourself. Yes. I will say this too, uh, something else I might do is based on the type of adventure. Um, I might use a combination of tools to represent uh, specific portions of the map. For example, uh, I recently, or not recently, maybe six years ago, I ran the Tomb of Horrors. Mm -hmm. (coughs) I drew the non-combat in puzzle portions of the map on isometric game paper. Mm-hmm. So there's gamepaper.com and they have these isometric maps. And so I would draw them. So it's a very interesting, bizarre perspective. Secret areas of the Tomb of Horrors, 
I had prepared on Dwarven Forge dungeon tiles, mm -hmm. and I would introduce them into play. These are secrets. Now we're three dimension instead of two point five D, and um, and then combat portions where we would run into combats. I had dry erase dungeon tiles that I'd plop out, and I had pre-drawn the room. So I was using three different types of maps on a single dungeon, mm -hmm. uh, which created a different kind of tone feel. Uh, based on the circumstance mm -hmm. so um I, I i think uh it'll depend on the adventure um when i did storm king's thunder which i tweeted about i would just purchase the maps that i needed from the cartographer's website and do architectural versions um there's some pretty good uh paizo flip maps mm -hmm. which are very good for quick quick and easy wilderness etc I would also think about uh, what is the reason for the map that we're using. Um, is it uh, what information do I need to convey to my players? Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's going to be a combination of all the above, I think. So those are some strategies I've used to solve when there's a DM proprietary confidential information um, that you're trying to avoid spoiling secrets. This is all very good. I'm going to, so th that link you shared with in the, in the chat that we have there, and uh, you mentioned a few other things here. I'm going to make sure I put those links into the show notes for anyone who's listening, so that way they can uh, click upon them at their leisure. Um, so what do you do when your player, now I'm going to, I'm going to frame this in that we know that the uh, exacting art and subtle science that is running a TTRPG game is not really containing chaos, but definitely trying to direct it in certain directions at times. And, you know, most of the time running around with your hair on fire, trying to pretend like it's not. Um, but what do you do when your players do something that is completely unexpected and unplanned? Um, oh. Not necessarily meaning they took a different direction with plot. I don't mean that because that's just all right. We that's a whole other thing. But I mean like within the confines of something that maybe you were planning for, but they find a way to, and mm -hmm. I love it when they do this. But when they find a way to twist a rule that you didn't think about, or use one of their abilities or powers in a way that's completely novel, that really is like you have that brief moment of, oh crap, I didn't. What the hell are we gonna do? What is your approach to dealing with something like that? Okay, and I'm going to give two examples um, that uh, come into play. And uh, the first example I'm going to give, and I'm going to link this uh, in chat. And this was on a stream game, and it was completely unexpected. However, it became the cause of much celebration. Mm -hmm. um, can multiple bag of holding Spanish Tiamat? And the correct answer is rules as written. There's no reason it wouldn't work. We're at the uh, <laughs> climax of the Red Hand of Doom campaign. And... <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so shout out to Josh. Hashtag kill Josh. Uh, Josh is, was one of my favorite players of all time. Uh, Josh it was a forever DM. Uh, uh, very uh, uh, well-respected uh, Adventures League Dungeon Master. Um, sweetheart uh, really embraces role playing on all levels, um, and he had a protocol that he referred to as the weapon of magic destruction. And he had been sitting on essentially a portable hole in a bag of holding for about 
10, uh, 10 months. And he had told me there were many times throughout the campaign he almost executed the strategy when all the players seemed completely in over their heads. At the climax of Red Hand of Doom, Tiamat makes an appearance, and if you convert the module to 5th edition, the recommendation is you just run her stat block from uh, uh, Rise of Tiamat, hmm. meaning she's like a CR 30 creature, and she deals hundreds of points of damage, and your players are only going to be like level 13 maybe when they get there. Oh, jeez. Uh, they're going to get wiped. Mm -hmm. And she certainly, she has legendary actions where her various dragon heads cause all sorts of damage. And, and this leads directly to Descent into Avernus, I'm assuming. <laughs> uh, well, um, the player managed to use his winged boots and land on Tiamat and then shove the bag into the portable hole. Oh, what he did before that, he used his bonus action, because he was playing a rogue, he used his bonus action to use an object, and he poured out all the contents of his bag of holding. Mm -hmm. That's how tactical he is. And I thought it was odd. I was like, why, why did he just empty his bag? He lands on Tiamat and shoves the bag into the bag, warping her to the astral plane, himself to the astral plane. He didn't lose any of his magic items in the bag of holding because he dumped it out as a bonus action, which a rogue can do. Mm -hmm. um, and then Tiamat went away. I had to clap. And there were people on Twitter that said, no, that's... That that I would I would send her right back to murder them all. So, no, so why would I do that? Like you got to celebrate that. So I'm I'm describe this for me again. So they put Tiamat in a bag of holding. No, you can't. You you put a bag of holding inside a bag of holding. Right. Which causes both bags to explode, create a astral tear, uh -huh. which sends everything adjacent to it to the astral plane. Oh, I got it. Okay. <laughs> yes and and so what i did is we celebrated the players were able to begin to escape the start of their next adventure was them escaping from the crumbling temple of tiamat mm -hmm. uh, they had beaten the red hand of doom and as they exited the um that was that was at the you know that was a dramatic conclusion it's something unexpected mm -hmm. um i thought they were going to run away and then Tiamat would get loose, and then they would raise an army, and they'd drive her back to where she came from. And that's not what happened. They defeated her. And this is the first round of combat. Mm -hmm. Tiamat rolled a natural one on initiative. Mm. She's the very last person to go. And she's killing everyone with her many legendary actions and these wide you know, area of effect breath weapons from her various heads. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's avoiding anything bad happening to her with her legendary resistances. Um, but the astral tear is not a spell. Spell immunity doesn't help. She has it's just a thing no that happens. Escape. Yes, and she's she's gone, and um, she had only appeared because the red hand had failed, and you know she was just going to cause some problems for a little bit, as it says in the adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, but I asked the player after the session. I said, "Do you want to create a new character? Or do you want to keep playing this one because you're a crafty individual?" And I think. What if you sacrifice three magic items in exchange for a flashback scene where you made a deal with uh, the Council of Wizards that are at the city? You know, essentially, they had some very, very, very powerful allies. Mm -hmm. We decided that there were three allies that would have enough magic to 
bring him back should he end up in the astral plane. Um, and we looked at the Dungeon Master's Guide for guidance on how long it would take him before he would arrive. Uh, but we decided, I said, you're going to sacrifice some of your resources in mm -hmm. order to not lose your character, as you rightfully should. Um, but this is a compromise. Yeah. You, you sacrifice something, you have an opportunity to get new magic items, you get a return as your character. And it was amazing, because as everyone escapes from the crumbling dungeon and they're all about to die, at, his character's there. There he is. Hey guys, what's up? He's, so he's just, yeah, and he just answered. He said, "So have I disappeared into the astral rift yet?" <laughs> oh, just, that's so cool. Yes, very good. And like so, and that's how you handle it. Like I was like, "Well, let's talk about this." I don't want everyone to think you got off scot free. So we wrote an explanation, and we did mm -hmm. it dramatic. We actually did it similar to Gandalf the White uh, revealing himself to the the, the fellowship, mm -hmm. um, where essentially. Um, I was speaking, then we started speaking in overlap, and then he took over. Um, I, I had him, because his character would think it would be funny, he has disguise self, and he was constantly disguising a certain NPC, so he showed up as a certain NPC mm -hmm. in disguise. That way his character was able to travel across the land incognito. And um, essentially, uh, it was a nice reveal, and everyone applauded it. A second time where something uh, unexpected occurred was uh, I was running Storm King's Thunder and I rolled a random encounter and uh, Lin Armal, the cloud castle of Countess Sansuri, was the next encounter, but it's a mile high in the sky and they had just gotten out of Iron Slag. They were really beat up. Uh, they're kind of underleveled to go to that castle, but they said, oh, we've got a solution for this. And they pulled out a bag of holding that had been modified so that it had a essentially the... I want to say the helmet of water breathing or something. So whatever's mm. inside, it doesn't need air. They had a bag of Tresum, so essentially flying cats. And they had Ooh. 10 flying cats that they dumped out of the bag. Then they had pygmy warts that they picked up in the adventure out of me, out of the abyss, which they then ate, shrunk down, mounted the flying cats, and flew up to the castle. <laughs> <laughs> and I let them know we're going to need a little bit more time to prep yes. the castle. It's okay. But we ran with it. And I said, I'm just going to run this. Now, it wasn't quite right at the beginning. And we're not really taking the plot in a different direction. We're just kind of like, oh, my goodness, how are we going to do this? And I think what I do when the players do something completely unsurprising uh, is I applaud. That's what I've learned. Uh, Monty mm -hmm. Cook has good advice in the Numenera core book. When your player, say, say your players defeat your big, bad, evil guy in a single action, clap them. Clap their ingenuity. You, you're lucky to have such clever players oh yes and and they might take a deal that uh throws things off and usually what i do is i applaud and then i just try to think about uh let's just play to find out what happens let's mm -hmm. keep rolling with it i'm i'm not shy of any of my improvisational skills or to the ability to run D D. and as you've seen in my prep i write down 10 secrets and clues before every session so mm -hmm. i have you probably only touch four of those or five of those in a a full session of Dungeons and Dragons. So I'm able to just keep uh, engaging with the uh, experience. If I if I don't have an answer, I usually have play aids, like I have decks of cards that Monty Cook Games mm -hmm. or um, Inkwell Ideas releases, where it's like, okay, um, I can just introduce things and just kind of follow the logic of the game system that we're playing. Um, that's... um. That's kind of the magic of play, and I'd like to start with, well, once my players kind of banish Tiamat, half the level they should be in order to even face her, and dramatically ended 
the campaign. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a beautiful and wondrous way. It's a wonder. Yeah, and so I, I I love it when they're doing something like that, and I'm gonna make them roll, or I have to roll, or whatever to see if it works, or whatever it is. But there's times where I just love being able to say. I'm rolling, but I hope I fail because I really want to see this happen. Yes. And but I and want the, I still want I want the dice to have agency there because then it just I can't just give it to you. When you're going that wacky, I need to have some agency there with with okay, there's some rules here. I can't just hand it to you, mm-hmm. but I want you to succeed because I want to yeah, let's see I want to see what happens. <laughs> yeah, in the case of the Tiamat situation, the roles were surviving to get to the point where they could do that strategy. Yeah. Um, and then the, um, cause then it was just running rules as written. And then mm-hmm. we reference because people are like, that should work. I was like, based on all the literature, it should. In fact, this has come up before and it's the most accepted interpretation of the rules. Um, now there's, there's other times though, where it's like the rule of cool is great, but the RNG and the randomness of the dice, um, regardless of, of, of how they come out, creates a fantastical fiction and a play experience that um there's been a lot of discussion about dm fiat sometimes we as dungeon masters and game masters and facilitators don't necessarily know the correct narrative beat or um if we turn the game into something completely skill-based for example if you and i were here and we just started improvising a movie script Mm -hmm. We could probably come up with something pretty good based on our experiences and over time and we we do that and it'd it'd be limited based on our skills as creatives though Mm -hmm. sometimes though just having uh in a play experience which is what games are having a luck component and an rng component is what keeps people coming back and removing some skill and introducing something unexpected it allows an opportunity for discovery Mm -hmm. we're going to discover something about the game and the play space that never existed before and um obviously you know i root for and i'm a fan of the players and i often want them to succeed especially with shenanigans but sometimes you can have like really powerful experiences based out of failure like Mm -hmm. party turnover sometimes is a phenomenal way to keep the game persistent fresh and going um where maybe a character unexpectedly disappears for a time um and then comes back dramatically um all these are good things well, to do a callback to what we were talking about before, some of the most memorable wrestling matches of all time are the ones where they have all those false finishes, or you could equate that to the failure. They didn't get the pin. They mm-hmm. didn't climb the ladder. They didn't get out of the cave, or whatever it was. But that's what cre- creates that drama, you know? Yes. If, if, a, yeah. if I forget which, I think it was the first TLC match, and I forget who it was, but if Edge didn't spear that dude off of the ladder... When there was no need to do so. Huh? Oh, yeah. Probably one of the hardy boys. Yeah, yeah. And it's. We always had a joke where it would be like, hey, Jeff Hardy died. Not that the joke isn't that Jeff Hardy's dead. No, no, no. I'm I'm going to preface that because I love Jeff Hardy. I thought he was. I think he's amazing. But it was. (laughs) It's going to be like, if Jeff Hardy dies and it's not by his own doing, that's going to be the shock. Like, he he doesn't break his own neck doing a senton bomb. It's like, oh, he died of old age? Really? And there's. There's something special too. Yeah. When um, there's a difference between you when you kick out a pin at two seconds, and two point nine nine seconds. Yeah. And dice tell that story. Mm-hmm. Um, Numenera in the cipher system is a great rule set. But there's few games where I've seen people cheer where they've rolled a four on a twenty sided die. But that's one of the rule sets where you might have a whole group of people cheering, 
seems like an arbitrary number, but it's like, that's the kind of game it is where it's mm-hmm. like those, those victories where the narrow edge of defeat. And if it's completely on fiat, uh, we might be making assumptions as a, a facilitator, a dungeon master, a game master, um, where our own judgment is what's best. And it may be, mm-hmm. it may be that we are that in tune and we're playing with a, a group of people at a table and we all align. But I mentioned earlier in this broadcast that I cut my teeth as a convention game master and having a standard set that everyone, a common language that everyone can reference to. Um, and I can tell the difference between people that say convention games and running convention games are their worst experiences versus those that are saying it's the best experiences. I was running for a group of primarily narrative uh, story heavy players and they're playing in the TPK tournament, the Kill Xanathar tournament. And they said the best experience they ever had in Dungeons and Dragons, they were literally one bonus action away from killing Xanathar Mm-hmm. before the time ran out mm-hmm. but it was such a dramatic game with twists and turns and it came down and their hands were shaking as they were rolling the dice because they knew the clock was ticking they have three hours to go through two combat encounters then face Xanathar in mm-hmm. a special encounter part of that is they have to assemble a party from a portfolio of characters and make the best level 7 party that they can mm-hmm. and the fact that it came down to a single roll that they failed Mm. They still said, they all shook my hand at the end, and they said, this was the best play experience I had in Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, yeah, that's, that, I Combat can, only. The journey. And but it's random. the journey to get there. Yes. It's like it's like a very exciting sport event. It's why we cheer at basketball games. It's why we uh, cheer at pro wrestling matches, whether it is uh, there's an extra level of narrative controls, what I'll refer to it, in other words, a wrestling match might rely on kayfabe and a predetermined outcome, but we as an audience buy into that predetermined outcome and we understand that there is a higher power that we might even be a part of that's controlling the outcome of everything. Or it's something that is uh, based on a percentage of chance, such as a basketball game. You know, Players mm-hmm. have shooting percentages, etc. Uh, there is a likelihood that they will succeed at the action, a randomness. We can create very dramatic and powerful story experiences Mm -hmm. out of our play experiences using either tool. And it's just understanding the judicious use and the context of each uh, uh, mechanism. Mm. Mm. I'm I'm loving this crossover. It's just so much fun. Yes. Um, All right. So a question I got actually from uh, the DM Academy uh, subreddit that I saw today and I thought it was interesting and I think it actually would be interesting to have your take on this mm-hmm. um, being that you run as many games as you do and you have all of this <laughs> stuff floating around in your head and trying to get it organized the question was uh, they're in the middle of a combat uh, this DM was in the middle of a combat encounter and they said that they lost two of their players between sessions so now they only have two players and basically it's a TPK situation now, aside from the, I, I'm going to say the easy answer of, answer of, well, you puppet the other two characters, then you figure it out from there. How do you deal with uh, the possibility of um, irregular attendance and not because of a disrespectful thing? And, and I'm not saying, I don't want to, if, if the player is just unreliable and like, I'll be there, I'll be there, and they're never there. That's something else entirely. I mean for maybe, I don't know about the pro wrestling game, but there might be weeks where just someone's not available for whatever reason. Um, How do you deal with irregular, or when you have a player at the last minute drop out, but you don't want to cancel the game? Okay. Um, 
the general rule for us is if you're down two players and and uh, it's a one-time miss we usually reschedule if we're down two players um if it's a single player and they're going to miss a single session um i use a technique from game design uh known as dynamic difficulty adjustment which uh that means you are going to adjust the difficulty of the combat scenario and rebalance it based on the capability and capacity of those in play the Dungeon Master's Guide has an excellent resource for creating your own monsters. Likewise, um, you can use some of that math underneath the hood to adjust encounters. Now, there's other game systems where we're able to do side stories, flashbacks, prologues, prequels, mm -hmm. and have exciting game experiences that might introduce something new when we all get back together. Um, a new piece of information, uh, a side scene, if you will, um, where we can add some spice to uh, the session of play. Um, now, if you're in a combat, the middle of combat, and you've lost two players and they're not coming back, I would rely on dynamic difficulty adjustment, understanding that we're playing a game. And I was talking about it a little bit on Twitter today. There's uh, two assumptions. The assumptions are the norms of play and the norms of fairness. And you can rely on the norms of play and the norms of fairness to adjust an encounter. Um, D&D has underlying math. They use an equation to generate encounters. And so you can, uh, encounters are scored by CR challenge rating. Um, and they give you in the Dungeon Master Guide tools on how to design encounters based on CR. Uh, the general rule for fifth edition that I use is that CR should probably be maybe two, two points higher than the level of the characters if you want it to be a challenging combat mm -hmm. so the fifth level characters do a cr7 um you're going to challenge those players uh, you know they'll get hit by a fireball spell but it's not going to kill them mm -hmm. um the second thing that i think about in the encounter is the action economy what are the total number of actions bonus actions and reactions that can occur in a round of combat and am i going to overwhelm the players if i do that um uh, uh so these are more game design tricks however you as a dungeon master are given these design tools within the dungeon master's guide to use likewise i might use some variant mechanics uh say i want to keep the fiction of like say say there's five orcs mm -hmm. um i don't want to remove the five orcs and make it 2.5 orcs that would one look weird in two it changes the description. We can retcon it. We could do that. But what I might do is say it's five orcs, but we're going to use the cleave damage variant from the Dungeon Master's Guide where damage that would go beyond the killing blow will bleed onto adjacent enemies, thus reducing their hit points and accelerating yeah. play, which is a way to increase action economy um, without changing the mechanics, without reducing the number of actions on the opponent's side. And relying on uh, uh, variants that are in the official source materials. Um, that's an old 2E rule. That's how they, I think that's the standard for, I think, if I remember. Yes. That was in, the standard. If you if you did 10 points of damage and there was only five points left on that, on that creature, whatever it was, that goblin, the next five, if there was a goblin next to it, went over to the next one. Yes. And I think my advice would be to 
find ways that accelerate play rather than slow it down. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, um, playing a combat with only two PCs is um, more challenging and you have less resources than if you have four or Mm -hmm. five. So um, I try to give advice where if I'm going to make a change to the game, my end result is often to accelerate play. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to turn it into a slog. So if this, you, the average for D&D combats is actually three turn or three rounds. Um, that's just kind of a standard if you have a full party. So I'm going to try to get this finished within three rounds. However, we'll notice, we'll also notice as well that um, say we play for four hours on average if we only have two players, we might only run two hours. Why? We're going to be spending more creative energy and needing to take up more space than if we had a full table. Mm-hmm. And so those are um, tools that we can use and say that we're going to plan for a shorter session because we're going to cover more content, because there are less individuals voicing opinions over the course of the session. So mm-hmm. you just think about that. If you look at a podcast like Party of One Pod by Jeff Stormer, Jeff runs one-on-one RPGs and he uses a variety of rule sets. However, he and the other individual playing the games use a lot more creative energy mm-hmm. um, than uh, if they had a full table. Mm-hmm. So what is one tip that you would give to a brand spanking new dungeon master still has the... They're still in mint condition. They still have that new DM smell. They don't smell like the tears of their players yet. What was one tip you would give them? Run as often as possible. Like away from the table or? It could be at the table. So just, no, <laughs> not away from the table. That's actually, you're ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> I love you. Um, no, run, run as many sessions as often as you can. You're going to get better by putting in more reps and you're going to get better by putting in more cycles. Um, when I was running the game every day, and you might not have the opportunity to, but mm-hmm. um, if if you um, don't have the opportunity, and this would be, say so you don't have the opportunity to run as often as possible. Also, if you run as often as possible, you might find and be able to create a game group that you uh, uh, fall in love with and you know you have the option to opportunity to play with more people mm-hmm. uh, that's what worked with me with star wars and that's what worked with me with dungeons and dragons the next if i had to give another tip is find what you do best and focus on building around that strength um i recommend people build around their strengths rather than try to improve their uh weaknesses uh, because um it's good to work on your weaknesses because they're opportunities of growth but if you find something mm-hmm. that you do best uh, for example, um, my friend Greg is great at descriptive. My friend Kai, he is great at session pacing. Kai said what I was great at was framing the session because I run many different systems mm-hmm. for many different people and everyone is able to lean into one purpose. Um, find what you do best and then build around that. Um, you might be very good at voices and voice work and you can find a way to use your unique talent of doing voices voice isn't required i don't do voices at the table typically Mm -hmm. um but i frame sessions really well and then i build around that since i frame sessions very well let's look at the game system we're running what is the core unit of play how can i introduce this how can i teach the game as efficiently as possible so the tip is find what you do best and build around it um 
and if you're able to run the game you love the most as often as possible you'll get better at running it if you can go back in time and visit in this case your 11 year old self what is one tip you would give your younger dm self um play with my peers earlier and more often for example um i began running uh, star wars the role-playing game when i was you know 11 but i didn't start introducing like say um uh, kids in the neighborhood that would have benefited from forming a relationship through role play mm -hmm. earlier so um i think being more inclusive earlier and it's not that i was uninclusive i i ran star wars for immigrants from the ivory coast and from panama and mm. it helped them learn the english language and make friends um as well as for friendships that last till this day. So, um, but I, I think I would start that earlier instead of starting at like age 14, I'd probably start at age 12. Boy, they say the best day to start was yesterday. The second best day is today, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, we're just about out of time. Where can people find you? If they were, if you wanted people to find you, I'm assuming on the internet, uh, where, where would they be able to uh, track you down and follow you? Because you have a lot of great resources you've shared tonight, and I need to thank you for that. Where could people follow you? So you can follow me on Twitter at a wise artist, one word. Uh, you can find me. I'm actually the producer for WebDM's Twitch channel. So if there's any streams going on on WebDM's Twitch channel, you can find me on twitch.tv backslash WebDM. Uh, likewise, you can find me running on my own channel at Daisy Plays, D-A-Y-Z-E-E -E, Plays. Um, and I'm here and there. Um, I have also published uh, a lot of D&D material through 2C Gaming. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you're so inclined, uh, buy my book, Grimworld, which is a dark fairy tale D&D uh, setting that introduced eight unique mechanical subsystems. Uh, to supplement play, add more story and narrative to it. If you like Japanese games like Ryutama, uh, we introduce a variety of mechanics that are inspired and influenced by some of the strongest mechanical systems in the world to supplement your 5th edition game uh, and get the most out of this system. Um, and I'm very proud of the work because I worked really hard on it. <laughs> uh, make sure you send me a link, and I'll make sure that that goes out into the show notes because I want people to be able to find that. Um, Daisy, this has been... A lot of fun. I'm, I always have fun doing this, and I can say it's always that we have some unexpected fun, and this was definitely continuing that trend. I had no idea that our conversation was going to take the turns that it did into the world of professional wrestling and all the stuff and the amazing resources that you've shared. Thank you so much. Are we going to see you at uh, PAX Unplugged this year? Absolutely. I'll be uh, there as an exhibitor with 2C Gaming. I'll be doing book signings. Uh, I, I mentioned the TPK tournament earlier in this call. Um, they're coaxing me into running a session. So if you like playing competitive Dungeons and Dragons for prizes, um, it's a great experience to really flex your skills. Um, and I may be speaking on a couple panels, but I'll be there for sure. Very cool. I'm a Philly guy and I've been going since the since its inception. So we're definitely gonna at least say hello to each other mm -hmm. at that point. Thank you so and, much. For, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Philly is my favorite food city in the world. Oh man, you got me right where it counts. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you, though, for so much for coming on and taking the time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule of 15 games to come on to the silly little podcast. I really appreciate uh, you and your time. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Well, that's it for this episode of Hidden Rolls. Remember, players, if you're in my game or in Daisy Darling's game and you listened to this podcast, your characters just might get illithited. Yeah, that's a thing. We're the Dungeon Masters. We can make it a thing. Please make sure to give us a big old five-star review on whatever platform you happen to be consuming this podcast on. Please follow the Hidden Rolls podcast on Twitter at hidden underscore rolls. And you can always give me, Brian Wiggins, a follow at the St. Brian on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>